Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So this morning we are beginning our time as we uh, get into the book of Genesis. We're going to spend the opening weeks of Genesis really almost all the way until Palm Sunday and Easter looking at some of the distinct themes out of the first three chapters of Genesis. Uh, Those of you that know Jim and I, we love expository preaching. We like to work through books of the Bible, letting the concepts, the the main point of the passage be hopefully the main point of the sermon that we're giving. And so as we look at Genesis, this uh, long book, this narrative, there's just a ton of huge thematic principles or concepts packed in to these first two or three chapters, really the first 11 chapters, but specifically in these first three chapters. And so as we open up our series in the book of Genesis, we're going to take extra time just in these first few chapters. Instead of going verse by verse necessarily, there are major worldview foundations that are laid down in the opening of this book. I was reading uh, an interview uh, with Don Carson, D.A. Carson, and when he was asking about Genesis and such things, he responded by saying this. He says, Today, when Christians talk about the doctrine of creation, a lot of the discussion immediately, immediately turns to when creation took place, how it relates to the claims of evolutionists, old earth, young earth, and things of that order. And certainly such questions are important. But it is not the place where the Bible itself lays the primary emphasis. Let me explain what I mean by that. Don Carson goes on. About 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called Genesis in Space and Time. And in it, he asked a question that I have increasingly come to see as fundamental. The question he asked, what is the least, he asks, that we must make of Genesis 1 through 11 in order for the rest of the Bible to be coherent and true. Goes on. Now he is not asking what is the most that you can draw from Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 1 through 3 in particular, but what is the least that we must be certain about, clear about for the rest of the Bible to be coherent and true? That is a very shrewd question because it is a way of saying Those are the things that we must most emphasize and that are least negotiable. And so he's going on. He talks about the references to this book that I've been working through myself uh, that Francis Schaeffer wrote. But getting at what are the big themes that we must see 
in these three chapters, and instead of getting into scientific and whatever, sort of all the debates that are surrounding it, what are the things that must be seen in these three chapters for the rest of the Bible to even make any sense? And so in that same sort of way, we're going to take this first chunk of our time as we start the book of Genesis, picking out the major worldview implications and ideas that are foundational to what we believe about who God is, who we are in relationship to Him, and all of the implications that, that come from that. We'll be thinking about God as our Creator, which is what we're talking about this morning. We're we'll talking about God and His Word. We'll talk about God and His ordered world, how He gives it order, and there's, there's, there's a system and a point and a purpose to all of it. We'll talk about God and His image bearers. We'll spend a lot of time, a lot of weeks on that, and on and on. So that's kind of the way we're going to handle, just as a brief introduction, that's how we're going to handle these next few weeks as we work through the book of Genesis. But to introduce today's theme, this morning specifically, we're looking at God as creator. God as the creator. And now, arguably, or I mean, you could make the point uh, that the things we're going to be discussing as we go through this may not be, I mean, hopefully they aren't, so revolutionary to you. As you have come to a Christian church this morning, I assume that most of you have at some level a basic agreement with the idea that God is the creator. Like, we're not like, wow, I can't believe we figured this out. But these, these simple, basic truths, they hold huge implications for us. And it's one of the, main, it's one of the big ideas that screams at, out at us from Genesis chapter 1. We're launching out of uh, 33, 6 through 9, because there's... This is throughout Scripture. There's this repeated understanding. It is not just Genesis 1, 1, which we could have read this morning to open up. It's really kind of the whole background of where we're coming from. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, that's a shorter way of saying. But we, we see all throughout the rest of Scripture this just uh, repeated acknowledgement of that reality. That God is the creator. He spoke, all things came into being. Uh, he spoke, it came to be. He commanded and it, stu- it stood firm. By the breath of his mouth, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And we see this consistent worldview throughout all of scripture as a foundational idea and doctrine to our faith that God is the creator of all things, uniquely and solely. So when we read through our Bibles, we see the implicit understanding and the explicit confession of our God being the one who made all things. What has come to be has come to be because God commanded it so. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 16 says that he is, speaking of God, he is the one who formed all things. Now, if we're back in Genesis, you could go there. That's, it's easy to find, right? The start of your Bibles. We look there at Genesis, and it gives us great detail about all the, the creative work that God is involved in, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we begin to see this pattern develop, right? We'll get... 
more into this. We see him speaking, which is what we'll look at next week. But God says, let there be light. God says, he gives this decree. Then there's the expanse in the midst of the waters. He separates the waters. God says, let the waters be gathered together. Let dry land appear. He calls it earth. God says, let vegetation spring up. God says, let there be lights in the expanse. God moving and acting and creating thing after thing after thing. We read on, we see that God speaking, creating, forming, and blessing. All the creative act coming from God and His action. He is creating all things. There is an unanswered, as we look at this though, we read on, we see that God is making all, doing all this creation. There is an unanswered question that we begin to think. All of this creation, we roll it back, what God is making, God is making, all these things are being created, but who created God? If Genesis 1 gives us all of these answers for why we see all that we see is because God made it, right? Okay, great, we roll that back. Why is this this way? Why is, why is the solar system? We can look all around us, all made by God. The question that we get when we sit at a very profound Sunday school classroom, which, I mean, i got to be honest with you, you sit around with kids, they ask sometimes the toughest questions, where did God come from? It's a very important question. I know that it's like, I, we're not, I know we're not sitting at second grade Sunday school class, but that's a really thoughtful and, and important question for us to figure out and to nail down. Where did God come, who created God? It seems silly and rather an elementary question, but it is a very good and important question with uncountable consequences as to how you answer it. Who created God, the question is. And the answer is no one. He is the uncreated creator. Before anything was, God already was. When he introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush, right? He says, who shall I say that has spoke to me? God answers, I am. Not I was, not he is, I am, he is, he is the all-existing, the eternally existing God. Who created him? No one. He eternally exists as God. He is the uncreated creator of all things. So if we were to go down the trail of philosophy for just a little while, we'd be able to put all of creation into three basic categories. Either everything was made by its own self-creation. Like uh, we, we just kind of naturally or super or whatever, we just, we just came to be. Or else everything is eternal, always has been, always will be. All matter is eternal. Or else everything that is was created by something else that is eternal. And if we take the first idea that everything kind of creates itself, you run into all sorts of logical problems because you can't exist before you exist. You can't, you can't be and not be at the same time. It's kind of nonsense to say that everything basically sort of created itself. But the second idea that matter is eternal runs into all sorts of problems as well. Because if, if matter itself is just eternal, if we are extreme materialism, what gives everything motion and meaning and purpose and distinction and personality how do, why does the world have personality? Why is there beauty? If everything just exists, and this is, this is way more philosophy than we need to get into, but why does beauty exist if everything is just matter and it's existed forever? Why do we have purpose and direction and meaning? 
If you posit that matter is eternal, you just create for yourself more troubling questions because you have to answer questions about why there is personality and goodness and beauty. And if all that exists is eternal matter, extreme materialism, those are the questions you are left with, which leaves us with what Christianity confesses, that before all things, there is an all-sufficient, independent creator of everything. Great thinkers in our history have put it, there is an unmoved mover. He himself is unmoved by all things. He exists. He's not swayed one way or the other. And he moves all things around him. Now, Aristotle, if you look that up, he'll, he'll talk about unmoved movers. Uh, but we don't, uh, Christianity says, no, there's not, there's not multiple unmoved movers. There is an unmoved mover, a singular unmoved mover. Mover, And so, as we're getting into this, the, it takes us into an important attribute of God. And I know that you thought, I hope that when we come to church, we talk about the attributes of God on a Sunday morning. Well, we get into a very important attribute of God, all right? And so, this is one of God's incommunicable attributes. So you can, this, this is, there are two kinds of attributes when it comes to God. There are his communicable attributes. And those are the things which God shares with us. Mercy, grace, kindness. We could list lots of things that, that are communicated to us, that we reflect, in the, in the same, not to the same degree, but that we have communicable attributes. But there are also incommunicable attributes, okay? And incommunicable attributes are, are things that are true of God that, absolute, that are not true of us. And you could argue maybe in small ways, but things like God's omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, right? The omnis. He's omniscient. He's, uh, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. We're very much just here where we are. These incommunicable, non-shared attributes that are, that are uh, solely true of God and make him worthy of our worship. And this incommunicable attribute that we're talking about this morning is the independence of God. God existed before everything fully independent of himself. And everything that he did was not done out of need, out of some insufficiency in himself. You'll hear it said, I mean, I just... Just to kind of knock this one off to the side. You'll hear it said that God created us because it must have been so lonely to eternally exist all by himself. And so he needed people to, uh, you know, to keep him company in heaven or whatever. Absolute, not at all the picture we get from scripture. God is independent and all sufficient. Now in Genesis, we don't specifically get the Trinity, but it, it, there are shades of it in there. The beginning, the planting of the seeds of the Trinity, but God exists in perfection as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. He's not lonely. He has no needs. He is independent. He, is, he has no dependency upon anything that he would make. He is the independent, all-sufficient God. He is self-existent. And if you want to be fancy, the, uh, the, the aseity of God is the fancy term. You know that I love fancy terms. It is the aseity of God, is this, is this term that is theologically used that God is independent, self-existent. He has no needs. What Genesis communicates to us at a very basic level is that God, in his independence and out of his self-existence, makes everything. God is. He's independent. 
self-sufficient, self-existent, needing nothing, and he creates everything. As a result of this, everything that is created is fundamentally different from him by the fact that they were created. God, by his nature as independent and self-existent, he needs nothing. Huge distinction being brought up here. Creator, everything else. (laughs) God, creator, everything else, creation. He is distinct. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, preaching there at Mars Hill, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He's grounding this, what is statement in this reality. God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. <laughs> he has no need. He has no, we, we, we don't see, he has no, he's not there a, a needy God needing something from us. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. His aseity, his independence. God is above it all. He is over top of it all. He is the creator. He has no need. Why is that so important? It's a great distinction because we not being God, have absolute dependency. (laughs) We have absolute dependency. He is fully independent, and we are absolutely, completely dependent. We have nothing if he does not give it. Why Why is this doctrine so important? How does this affect us, boots on the ground? Well, there are, as I said, I think earlier, countless ways that this happens, but Just a couple for us here this morning. Why is this doctrine so important? We, first off, we cannot obligate God. we, We cannot put God in our debt. All things come from Him. We cannot obligate Him as though He owes us something. The very fact that you are breathing air right now, sitting in a, getting nice and warm room, is, is not owed to you. You could not make this out of nothing on your own. God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke, he commanded, it came to be. We are absolutely dependent upon him for everything. You cannot keep your heart pumping forever. Now, we have great, uh, you know, medical, uh, you know, mod- uh, great science that is uh, moving forward, progressing, and, and understanding how to, to keep ourselves going, but we cannot just by fiat decide heart keep beating i mean one of the one of the interesting griefs they talk about when a person develops health problems is the betrayal they feel by their own body like this thing that i thought was my friend i can't get to cooperate it's like we want to keep going and you're breaking down and then there's this we cannot keep ourselves going we are fully dependent we god is, is absolutely, we are fully dependent upon him and his mercy for all things. Obedience to God is not done as a way to twist God's arm to get something from him. Obedience to God is done because it is the only right response to a God who owns, owns it all. 
Obedience is the only sensible thing to the God who is in charge, who made you, who gives you breath, who gives you life, who from whom has given everything, through him all things exist, and to whom are all things going towards. Obedience is the only sensible thing. So we cannot obligate God. He's not served by human hands. He's the one who's over top of it all. But secondly, this doctrine is so important because there is nothing that we possess that is not first and foremost His, including ourselves. Including ourselves. Psalm 100, um, another psalm, just a good place to go to. I mean, there's, the psalms are filled with this sort of language, but you know this psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with, you know, we could all sing that Sunday school, or some of us could sing that Sunday school song. You know, make a, anyway, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And this is huge in our context today where expressive individualism is what we're all about. Expressive individual. You are, a, you are a unique, wonderful individual, and the whole purpose of your life is discovering who you are. And we divest all of this energy, and we invest and expend a ton of stress trying to figure out, who am I? What do I want to do? What, what do I want to, what do I want my occupation to be? What, where do I want to live? What, all of, we were, we're surrounded, and especially in our modern age, that drowns us with 300 cereal choices, right? You can go to the store, and there's, you have countless breakfast options. We're just surrounded by choices, and we have this choice paralysis almost, in our, and this anxiety is produced in our lives because there's so many options of trying to figure out, am I a Cheerios guy? Or am I a cinnamon toast crunch guy? You know, what am I? Evan's neither one of those. But I'm saying, what, what am I? He's an oatmeal guy. There you go. What am I? Who, who am I? We feel this great pressure for, for individualism, this creed that you are your own. It is intoxicating at some level. It's intoxicating. That, oh, yeah. I am my own. I do create my future. It, my life is mine. And I'm going to go out and, and take the world by storm and accomplish this and all. It's, it is intoxicating. There's a, good, there's a good reason why it becomes so uh, just entrenched in a culture, this idea of you are your own. Go, go, make your, go make it worth something, your life worth something. It is intoxicating, but it's also crushing. It's also crushing. You are... To, to say that you are your own and only you decide what is best for you. It's what has led us to this place today that people don't even know what, what sexuality they are, what gender they are. It's led to such confusion because every little thing, it's up to you to figure out. There are no fixed realities. There is no fixed truth. There is no singular purpose to it all. It's all just individually driven. And it's left our culture absolutely confused and, and full of anxiety and worry and stress and collapsing over all of this struggle to figure out personal identity. Who am I? Who am I? Well, the question that we really ought to get at is not who, first and foremost, who am I, but, but whose am I? Do I belong primarily to myself? Am I so independent that I make my own existence? 
No, you don't. There isn't a single one of us that decided when to be born, where to be born. We didn't pick our parents. It wasn't like, you know, my mom, she's okay, but my dad, can we get somebody? I don't know about that. We didn't get to pick that. None of that happened. You are not independent. We are absolutely dependent. But the idea of independence, it sounds like liberation, but it's actually crushing. There's this crisis in our population of an inability to give life sufficient meaning and value. Part of why it's crushing is that you start living long enough to figure out you're not able to actually create the life you wanted to create. And that you are, uh, like the rest of us, uh, you are subject to millions of circumstances around you that crush in upon you that you have no real control over. We've been told all along to belong to ourselves and the responsibility and failure at giving ourselves meaning is crushing. The anxiety we suffer from as a result of feeling this pressure is something for our, as, as to be something for ourselves, it's overwhelming. And this is one of the reasons why historic Christianity is so liberating. It is an embrace of reality. It's an embrace of reality. It isn't like the world is real and we come in here to like pretend and, and make religious you know, ideas up to, to insulate ourselves from reality. No, it is, it is an embracing of reality. This One of these great realities is this. You're not your own. God made you. God made everything. Life does not get its meaning from you. He is the one who made all things and gives all things meaning. He is the independent one. He has a city. He has self-existence. He exists in and of himself. Christianity is coming to an embrace of reality. We are not our own. It is something we must recognize and submit to. One of our earliest rebellions, one of our earliest and most common rebellions is the fight for autonomy. I want to be my own. I want to create my own right and wrong. I want to create my own existence. I want to create my own life. And this is why we are in such desperate need of the gospel. This is why we are in such desperate need for the gospel. Our desire for independence is an effort to rob God of his independence. It is treason and idolatry all wrapped up into one. And this is why God's anger is against us in our natural state. This is why the work of Christ is so precious. Our struggle that we have to be in control over our lives and our desperation to get it our way is rebellion against this reality. You're not in charge. He is. Our anxiety and fearfulness over every possible and oftentimes even improbable, but our imagined dangers is a rebellion against this reality. God is above it all. It is his world and we live in it. Our cynicism and persistent discouragement because things aren't our way, the way we want them, it is rebellion against the reality. Things aren't meant to be your way. Your way probably is terrible. <laughs> when you get down to the final analysis, what we want is not your individual way, but the one who has made it all, he is getting his way. And joy and freedom and happiness is finding ourselves not creating our perfect world, but finding ourselves happy in his, happy in his world. Because it isn't yours, 
It is His. He made it. He is the Creator. And we are simple creatures. It is only through an embrace of this truth that we are not independent, that we are His. And further, further, this is, what, this is where Christianity really begins to broaden your eyes. Not only are we His by creation, but when we see, as we get into Genesis 3, the fall, mankind and our rebellion and idolatry against Him, deserving His wrath, God in His mercy and His grace sends His Son, Jesus Christ incarnates, puts on flesh, lives the righteous life. He never gets confused. He knows he's God. He, he never gets confused. He never sins. He doesn't commit idolatry and rebellion against God. Lives the righteous life we should all be living. Worships God fully. And yet suffers the wrath we deserve for our rebellion and idolatry. So that each of us could be not only created by him, but recreated. Born again made his doubly by the work of Jesus Christ. That belonging to him, it is only through this embrace that we are not independent, that we are his, and further, that through faith in Christ we are doubly his. That not only are we his in some generic sense as image bearers, as those that God has made, we are his because he has purchased us through the work of Christ by faith in that work. It's through embrace of that truth that belonging to him because the, becomes the comfort that it ought to be. There's so much to say. Um, I don't want to get ahead in Genesis, but a common refrain that God states at the end of his creation days, right there in Genesis 1, he gets to the end of that day, and what does he say? He says, it's good. It's good. This God who has made all things, his goal, his intent, his, in, his, his intended purpose is for good. This independent maker, this one who has self-existence, he does what he does for the good of his people. He builds this beautiful world for Adam and Eve to inhabit and their progeny for their good. Now we'll get to the fall and how we broke this. But God does it for their good, for the good of his people. And recognizing our dependence upon him and clinging out of necessity to him is the most blessed place there is to be. Let's pray. Father, we sit this morning just wanting to humble ourselves in this reality, this all-consuming truth that you